0: I think it only works because now the energy transition went mainstream. Meaning regulatory frameworks have been put in place, meaning the individual is feeling a bigger impact on his own pocket because prices just went up. And hence, it will also have a bigger effect on how the broader public will perceive the energy transition. And in the end, the higher cost, the higher burden lies um, with the individual. And I think that will put a lot of pressure in the end on our uh, democracies. So it will be interesting to see if. There is a common European understanding on how to create an accepted pace for the energy transition so that everybody is in support of it. Because what we, of course, see at the moment in terms of technology deployment or technology advancement, it all costs money. Welcome back to the Future Engineering Co podcast. My name is Jack Lomas, and join me as I
1: speak some of the brightest minds in the built environment, Hearing firsthand their experience beyond the future of our planet. One of the things I love about the energy transition is that success depends on a team effort. And over the last few episodes, I've spoken to folks across the full value chain. We've spoken to the people responsible for moving the energy around the UK. We've looked at the different sources of energy generation, such as nuclear and hydrogen, to organizations who are responsible for getting electric vehicles plugged into cities all the way through to innovators building the resilience of our network infrastructure. These stakeholders all play a critical role in the flow of energy around the world that we live in, but there's one additional stakeholder within this ecosystem that plays a vital part. Early-stage venture capital funds play a key role in the built environment, as they're often the ones who carry the risk during the early phases, injecting much-needed capital into high risk capabilities, to help them iterate and develop perfect solution against a specific industry challenge. And it's for this reason, I'm so excited to welcome Moritz Jungmann, partner at Future Energy Ventures, the venture capital fund of energy giant E.ON, one of Europe's largest operators of energy networks and energy-related infrastructure, and a provider of innovative customer solutions for about 50 million customers. I'll let Moritz introduce himself in a second, but, Future Energy Ventures are dedicated to building the energy system of the future, and their portfolio of investments paints a fascinating picture to what the energy industry will look like, so I'd recommend checking them out. And finally, before I pass over to Moritz, if you enjoy this episode, please consider giving it a share on LinkedIn and a follow on Spotify, as it really help promote our conversation to others who might find it helpful. Now, let's welcome Moritz.
0: I'm Moritz. I'm a partner at Future Energy Ventures. Future Energy Ventures today is the corporate venture arm of the Eon Group. Eon SE, big energy utility based in Essen, Germany, have been with the company since 2017. Studied back in the days politics and administration. Started two company from scratch. After then, yeah, trying to find the best intersection of what I crave for, which is technology, startups, and politics. And here I ended up in the energy world.
1: And I know just from speaking to you my familiarity with Future Energy Ventures, you've got quite a strong vision for the energy system of the future. Would you mind just taking us through that?
0: So I think it's quite clear that the energy system of the future is based on a broader mix um, of renewable energy generation sources. And that always brings up three to four Ds around the concept of the energy system of the future. First D is digitization, making a quite, you would say, dumb grid to a more communicative grid where the transmission as well as the distribution grid providers get more visibility on how the energy flows or can be managed and orchestrated. The second D is decentralization, power generation through the shift to renewable energy will be more distributed. We see it today, especially I would say everywhere with a huge growth in residential power generation. This means the concept of the energy infrastructure moves from a very centralized system where we have big power generation plants from coal or gas or ignite to more renewable power, power generation, be it offshore, where certainly more centralized in a certain way, but definitely more local and distributed through the easy deployment of these technologies. The third D would be democratized because of the setup of how renewable energy can be deployed on a really small unit economic, as you would say, everybody could actually become in generating their own or power in itself. And that, of course, means that a power system that was fully owned by the state to a certain extent was liberalized in especially the Western Hemisphere to the idea that everybody is allowed to sell power but now, with technology advancement, everybody is actually able to also generate power. And that, of course, gives the idea of energy a new value for democratization in, in, in its core. And adding the fourth D, which at the beginning, when I started in the energy world, was not as um, prominent, but it's of course decarbonization. So today, 22% of GHG emissions come from the energy sector. Hence, there's a lot of decarbonization that needs to be done on our journey to net zero. And hence, it's one of the, or well, now the fourth pillar of the energy system of the future.
1: And as you said, we're well familiar with the idea of digitization of our networks, Internet of Things, and, and connectivity of our infrastructure has been around for a little while. And we're, we're now really seeing it integrated as, as business as usual from an asset management perspective. Decentralization and democratization, maybe concepts that people are a little bit less familiar with and not forgetting the fourth D around decarbonization Obviously, decarbonization is at the front of everyone's mind at the minute. And this podcast is basically dedicated to decarbonization through all of the conversations that we're having that lead back to that same point. I'd like to just dive into decentralization. For a little bit, decentralization can mean so many different things. And I know that you gave a couple of examples there around, say, the role of offshore wind and being plugged back into the grid. Would you mind just diving into decentralization and making it real in terms of some examples where you see the biggest opportunities for impact?
0: Yeah, sure. Of course, the biggest impact. So I think it's, it's an opportunity. I mean, in the end, it's, I think, probably rather a consequence of technology advancement. Solar prices being reduced, I think, by a magnitude um, of the last decade, making it possible for everyone to build up either a commercial power plant based on solar or wind, or to become more independent by deploying PV modules on your own house or in your own garden, depending, of course, always how much access you have. And I think the idea of this decentralization is more the view from the, let's say, energy utility or the, the, the grid provider, because for him, the energy generation was always quite centralized. But now with the opportunity through low costs for entrepreneurs or for individuals to go off grid in a certain way. For them, the the idea of decentralization is not the idea they follow. They follow much more the idea of independency. So, I mean, at least here in in Germany, we don't see a lot of blackouts. But if you look, of course, to the U.S. or other parts of the world, I think energy autocracy is something individuals crave for. And I think what we have seen now in Western Europe after or during the energy crisis, the uh, Russian attack on Ukraine. I think there's a huge search for, yeah, let's say energy independence for the individual. Plus, of course, the overhaling sword of the climate crisis. That means people are getting more and more aware of how or, or which kind of energy do I actually want to consume? And what does technology offer today as a or at least technology providers as a one-stop shop solution. Because what the, in the end, independency means I can generate my own power, I can store my own power, and then I can I can decide myself if I either want to consume it, maybe also consume it through my transportation vehicle, my car, or if I actually want to make a business out of it and sell it back when energy prices are higher demanded at a certain time in the day. And I think that idea is out of the view or the perspective of the energy utility, the idea of decentralization, which comes with a lot of challenges because as said before, before you can manage a decentralized grid, you need a digitized grid. And as the energy utility sector is still very dominated by, let's say, rather conservative approaches on how to adapt new technology, it just takes a lot of time until you get the asset base as modern as you needed to really orchestrate so many new decentralized assets.
1: It's a super fascinating concept. I mean, it reminds me a lot of a, a recent podcast guest that we had, Michelle Brussels-Bauer, VP Strategy of Last Energy, a micro nuclear power plant which allow large industrial organizations to have their own power supply in the form of a micronuclear power plant which is just such a cool and fascinating concept. And it's just such a different deployment of a powerful energy system to one that we're used to. And you you mentioned a few times around the energy utility and the startups and the innovators all within the same ecosystem. As someone who leads a fund that is backed by a large energy utility, what would you say the role of energy utilities are in enabling this push to decentralization versus the role of of innovators? Good
0: question. I think their role has been significant over the last decade because I think the energy transition just wasn't very sexy. Out of an innovator's perspective, if you would look at how much funds actually flew into energy or let's say climate tech um, in 2016, it was around $6 And I think last year, looking at climate tech, we see data, it was around 70 billion, so 10x in growth of investments into that space. And that is, of course, much broader than just the energy sector. So actually, corporate venture capital units were mainly deploying cash into technology or technological companies, being it hardware or software providers. But when we, of course scan the market today of who is actually providing most of the decentralized energy assets. Well, it, it's not the energy utility, it's actually innovators like Empire, 1,5, Sunvigo There's so many, just looking, for example, at the residential PV uh, market. So it shows that, of course, uh, even though there has been a lot of support by the energy utilities in that space, adapting it and really being a leader in deploying these kind of assets has not been the case.
1: Going back to the, the role of the energy utilities and I guess thinking from a infrastructure perspective, how ready would you say our infrastructure network is to be able to make use of all of these new technologies like microgrids, et cetera? Or is there still a, a bit of a bit of a hurdle that we need to cross in terms of investing and upgrade in our grid?
0: Oh, yeah, good question. I'd say overall, the infrastructure, of course, needs an an upgrade to a certain amount, but it's also capable to deal with the growth that is happening as we speak. And it's always a little bit the question, hand and egg, what needs to be first? And it's, I think, certainly clear that the energy infrastructure providers are not Due to their structure and also decision processes and investment processes, which are yeah, that tightly knit to government funding, are not going to be the fastest. So it leaves a lot of room for opportunity for new service providers to come up with yeah filling the gaps with good and profitable solutions. And here I think it will be a little bit of back on and forth of how much microgrids or let's say how much micro energy communities can actually develop in a certain time, so that will has a, have an effect on how the infrastructure actually will need to be updated. So I think there's not a clear path yet that uh, can be followed. I think what we're seeing is that regulations, especially in Spain, in the UK, in Italy, and hopefully also soon in Germany, opening much more doors in creating more opportunities for entrepreneurs in creating, for example, energy communities or microgrids. But we're still here in the infancies. And then the big question will be how much generation can actually be produced or be localized And then, of course, the biggest question is, how can you deal with intermittencies? How can you create a certain medium to long-term storage facilities? And I think here it's unclear. I think we are um, all realistic to a certain degree that uh, the energy of the midterm future has a high volume of renewable energy, but that for peak shaving, we will, and for flowing energy, we will need classical power generation.
1: You spoke before about the energy industry not really being that sexy, but we're now starting to overcome that hurdle. And energy is now very much at the front of a lot of people's minds, which naturally then attracts a huge amount of more capital and investment into the industry. and. One of the interesting things about the energy industry is, although you have the hard capital infrastructure that a lot of people don't see in their everyday lives, they still very much feel the, the impact of how the energy network is, is operating in their everyday lives. And it plays a key part in the existence of society, particularly with the, the rise in energy prices. So it's very much at the front of people's minds at the minute. We spoke before about the, the readiness of energy utility companies for this change. What's your perspective on the role of energy and the need for wider societal change and the adoption of greener, low carbon technologies?
0: Yeah, I think also here, looking at the consumer or the individual in the end, don't really believe in like a shift in, in mindset of the broader public towards a greener or more renewable energy generation, because most of the people, they just don't care. Most of the people, I believe, they took the, the ongoing flow of energy, especially here in the Western world, for granted. It, just, it was always there. You just... Plug in and whatever you plugged in usually just worked. And electricity prices also were not on the forefront of your mind. So it's it was a, a standard bill that you took care of and you didn't really put any other thought into it. And I think especially now, because it's probably a little bit of a perfect storm for the energy transition with the climate crisis with, uh, of course, very falling prices for energy technology, plus the energy crisis, which is connected to war, which is connected then, of course, to a more liberal mindset and also bigger, let's say, it's, it's always also political or ideological topics. And that, of course, now pushes a bigger visibility on that topic. I, of course, also like to believe that the individual has a sense for a more greener economy. I think it only works because now the energy transition went mainstream, meaning regulatory frameworks have been put in place, meaning the individual actually has or is feeling a bigger impact on his own pocket because prices just went up. And hence, it will also have a bigger effect on how the broader public will Perceive the energy transition, especially in Germany, with of course our early decision to to move out of nuclear. Now, of course, also a clear timeline to move out of other fossil fuel power generation. And in the end, the higher cost, the higher burden lies um, with the individual. And I think that will put a lot of pressure in the end on our uh, democracies, because we all know that uh, unhappy smaller groups. Uh, easy to steer um, the public agenda because uh, yeah, they've raised their voices. So it will be interesting to see if there is a common, hopefully also a common European understanding on how to create a accepted pace for the energy transition so that yeah, everybody is also in support of it. Because what we of course see at the moment in terms of technology deployment or technology advancement, it all costs money. So we talk about a huge surge in, in residential PV. It's residential PV. So you need to be a homeowner to really also profit from the idea. But everybody else that lives in multi-tenant houses, they are, of course, I wouldn't say left behind, but it's out of their choice if they can participate or not. So it's also it also shows again that the governments need to, to take care or be aware that the energy transition will be perceived by everyone and it will touch all sectors, meaning that we have the discussion here again in Germany about how much e- economic power do we lose if energy prices are kept or are increased over a certain threshold, and how much production can we keep in continental Europe. And I think that has a lot then to do with yeah, how much economic security the European Union can also yeah, generate.
1: And I know that you've spoken before about the idea of a prosumer which is quite an interesting concept. Would you mind taking us through that?
0: Yeah, sure. So the prosumer, so the combination of a producer and a consumer, I think has been around probably over the last, I don't know, 20 years, always with the idea that a residential homeowner could become a producer of energy. And while you are produced and while you are consuming, you could be a producer. And that is actually... What we're seeing today is coming true. I think that is the consequence of the residential PV surge. I think we are actually now on the next level of a prosumer where there are new solutions in the market that help the prosumer to efficiently manage being a prosumer. Because while you, of course, start generating a certain asset or product being get electricity through your solar modules, you're becoming an entrepreneur. You need to register. You need to file certain um, invoices with your municipality or the energy energy provider. That's actually a lot of work, and you need to take care of. And so the question now is probably: Is there a high willingness by the broader public to become a prosumer? Because it comes with a lot of a lot of tasks. A lot of activities and now we see concept I think for example San Vigo and we invested in they offer solar as a service. So they just sell you an energy contract. And with this energy contract they also have the right to deploy modules, storage on your roof in your basement to take care of all the administrative burdens that one might face if you just want to produce energy. So the prosumer overall is the end result of having a very decentralized uh, energy system.
1: And you mentioned before Germany's high-profile early exit from nuclear power. Thinking about nuclear power and, and hydrogen energy and low-carbon energy sources, they're often touted as the, the key enablers in the energy transition and decarbonizing our energy supply through significant investment into green and blue hydrogen. From your perspective as, as an investor, looking into sort of the, the European and maybe even global markets, what's your perspective on the role of hardware and deep tech as a means of enabling decarbonization compared to the
0: role of software? So I think. Software can only enable optimization if there's enough hardware that it can still or orchestrate. So I think we, we, I would rather look at what kind of hardware do we actually need to achieve our net, net zero targets. And I think here we, we follow the more mainstream understanding that most of the technologies have already reached the status of commercialization let's say 65 to 70% that are addressing um, mitigation or reduction. And there's only 20 to 30% left for which we need to create, develop, finalize certain new technologies. And hence, what we are saying, at least from our investment perspective, is we want to make an impact today. And hence, we try to optimize the asset base that can be deployed today or in the next year and help to create the fast route for mass adoption. And I think there lies a lot of opportunity in it. And hopefully, it also follows the line, what I was saying earlier, that as it is such a complex shift, the energy transition as, as it is from central to decentral with lot of opportunities from smaller groups individual to take part in it and to really yeah also be be creative in it I believe then actually needs even more capital and more visibility to flow in what you can really achieve on your own
1: and thinking about your your work at future energy ventures, you really went deep into the energy market before a lot of other venture capital funds were interested, which has allowed you to really dominate the field. Being in the market backed by a large energy utility, as we mentioned, how has that affected your investment thesis and your approach to identifying opportunities for investments?
0: Yeah. So I think, first of all, I think most of the energy utilities have been trying to be part of the broader VC community even before I started at at Energy back then in 2017. There were also activities with RWE, which was the mother company of Energy, before then already in 2012. I think E.ON did their first investment around the same time. So as I said, corporate venture capital funds or corporate venture capital teams have been dominating in that space for a long period of time. And I think the, the usual aspect, of a CVC is that it has a strategic driving element for its its day-to-day business. And how does this strategic element derive from? I think that is probably to a certain extent different in every setup. There's always a question of how close do these units have to be to the business itself. Starting with Inuji, he was the main credo always be as far away from the business units as possible because only outside of the corporate you can identify new solution new innovators and then you bring them back so at a certain point in time and try to actually achieve a matchmaking and then hopefully also a certain win-win situation while at eon The world looked totally different here. There was always a very close relationship with the business units, trying to identify what are challenges, what are problems they need to solve. And then not only try to scout for solutions outside of the corporate, but also inside on trying to identify are there other units yet that are trying to tackle that problem? Then, of course, trying to bring in new companies, new providers, and that created, in the end, a certain neat map of the the different business units as such. And this was a base of how the investment unit started scouting. And so I think corporate venture capital teams wear usually two hats. Um, and it's always a little bit the question of how different the weight of the both heads are, one being strategic, one being financial. Every investment being a capital investment needs to have, of course, a good financial basis and a good rationale behind it. But usually the strategic element is the dominant factor for in the end deciding for a investment or not, which brings you at one point to the situation that if this development of this company does not meet the path of the strategic idea at a certain point, but is maybe still developing very profitable. What is the role of a strategic investor as a shareholder in that company if there's no strategic value any longer for the company you represent? And I think this is something that often then leads to a lot of discussions because an investment committee might say, we're not a financial investor, so why should we keep this company Either alive or which we keep investing in a company where we don't have any kind of stake in it in terms of strategic um, value, and that means for us we decided together with Eon on the one side because the energy or climate tech market has been has been um, has been rising in volume. I mentioned earlier from six billion to seventy billion over the last seven eight years. This means valuations have also been surging, more competition in the market from more generalist funds, but also a lot of new climate tech funds that also are looking for the the same big opportunities. And then the question, how can you differentiate? And that was the reason for us to start raising a new fund, multi-LP fund outside of the EON corporate, but supported by EON as one of the anchor investors, which lays the ground for creating a facility where we can onboard more strategic investors so that we can multiply our matchmaking process, which we have successfully um, created together with EON to other strategic investors that want to be active in the energy transition or are already active with their customers and need certain new inputs but also onboarding more institutional investors that help us raising our 250 million vehicle to also then support startups and other investment targets over a longer period of time.
1: And just thinking about your four Ds, I'm really interested in how you measure impact from an investment perspective. Would you mind breaking that down for us?
0: So it's actually quite um, a simple approach investment process we not only do a financial analysis we also do an impact analysis and where we want to where we want to get an understanding on what the unit economic on per product sold on the ghg reduction or mitigation can be and that is something where we first start with a workshop together with the the startup team to really incrementally understand what is the scope of the product and then build alongside a unique economic model that alongside the financial model so that you can actually see what a successful development would mean in the next five years aggregated or in the next or until 2050. And for us, a threshold out of an impact perspective would mean, the company needs to uh, mitigate or needs to reduce five megatons aggregated in the next five years after investment. This is an approach that has been developed by a project group of global VCs called Project Frame, where our ESG and impact specialist, Natalie from the team, has been part of the working groups. And I think it's also quite clear that it is an approach that, needs to be revisited and iterated so that there will be a common understanding on how to evaluate certain business models and new products.
1: Amazing. Maurits, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it and see you soon. You've been listening to the Future Engineering Club podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. I really hope you enjoyed it. Keep an eye out for next week's episode.
0: And in the meantime, give me a shout on LinkedIn and let me know what you thought. Thanks and goodbye.